0: When author Frances Mays recommends small towns to visit in Italy, she wants you to find places where old-world traditions are still part of everyday life.
1: Discover some of the ways that people still live that have gotten kind of run over in contemporary life.
0: Frances Mays tells us about dozens of small towns she's fallen in love with all across Italy. Elsewhere in Europe, a hard shift to the right has been challenging how some citizens feel about their government.
2: A lot of people in Turkey have the sense that the government is taking advantage of the coup attempt to oppress the opposition. On the other hand, many people believe that they have every right to do so.
0: While in Hungary...
3: There was no new political program. There was only one word. Refugees, we will protect you.
0: We'll look at political populism in Hungary, Poland and Turkey, plus the back road charms of Italy in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Special guest Frances Mays tells us what's new under the Tuscan sun as she explores the delights of off-the-beaten-track Italy in her latest book. That's in just a minute on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And we'll get a personal look at what's behind the political dramas in Poland, Hungary, and Turkey, where tensions over populist sentiments have been making headlines in the last few years. Ever since Frances Mays got an impulse to buy a house in Tuscany and wrote about her experience in the bestseller Under the Tuscan Sun, she's been introducing the world to the delights of living in Italy. Lately, she's been wandering off the beaten path to discover the charms of dozens of small towns and cities all across Italy. In her latest book, See You in the Piazza, she takes us along as she, her husband, and her grandson explore the kinds of places Italians treasure free from the crush of mass tourism. Francis joins us now to explore hidden Italy from the peaks of the Dolomites to the sun-drenched tip of Sicily. Francis, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's wonderful to talk to you.
0: Yeah, now you've spent uh, 30 years loving Tuscany, kind of splitting your time between uh, the United States and Tuscany. You wrote a number of books on Tuscany, and now you're talking about Italy in general. How would you relate Tuscany to the rest of Italy?
1: Well, it's still the heart to me. I would always want to live there and go back there, but this book was such an adventure because I was on the road for 170 days last year staying in all these really new to me places and it kind of put the discovery back into travel for me. Not that, you know, it had ever gone away in Tuscany, but just finding these little tiny beach towns way in the south of Sicily Mm -hmm. and waterfalls way up north near the German border. It just opened my eyes to how endless Italy is and how if you had like 10 lifetimes, you could never really see all of it.
0: Boy, I found that myself. You know, you've had the luxury of you know, living near Cortona with your whole under the Tuscan sun experience, and that's a luxury to be actually putting down roots and getting to know the community. And then from a traveler's point of view, most of us go to Italy with just a couple of weeks and you got to see the biggies, but you had 170 days, and I'm sure you've seen Florence and Venice and, and Rome to your satisfaction, and now you had a chance to go to places that, that guidebooks don't even cover Tell us a little bit about how you researched the book. Did you set out with uh, five or six months uh, and your goal was just to cover Italy from top to bottom? Did you have a list of places you wanted to see? How did that unfold?
1: I had a lot of places in the back of my mind, not only the places that are kind of unknown to almost anyone, but also to try to go to some of the places that get skipped. Mm -hmm. When you go travel to Siena, Assisi, Florence, Rome, etc. Those are so great for a first-time trip, but after that, there's just layer and layer and layer of other stuff to see. So, I wanted to see places like Geneva. Everyone knows of it, but who goes there? I wanted to spend a lot of time in Parma, which often gets skipped, and places like Catania, which have a kind of bad rep, but Hmm. once you get there, you really know how amazing they are. So, had this list that I wanted, but then I just set myself into a place that was central and started exploring out from there without necessarily even knowing where I was going to stop. In that way, I discovered a little tiny place in Puglia where there's a medieval bread oven, and they still make the bread there in the old ways, and people bring in their own bread with the cross on it, and just trying to make lots of touches with the you know, old country civilization and discover some of the ways that people still live that have gotten kind of run over in contemporary life.
0: In Italy, it's like night and day, touristic places and places that almost never seen a tourist. And uh, I would think the prices are about double where all the tourists go. And the folk culture and the traditions actually are more vivid in places the tourists don't go. When you talked about the place in Puglia, which had that traditional oven... Talk about a little bit of how traditions survive that a tourist that just goes to the the big famous places might be completely oblivious to.
1: The deeper you go into Italian life, the more you realize that it's bottomless and that you go to a place like Puglia, which has its famous spots, you know, but you get into the whole civilization of the place, the whole history, and that is what leads you, like reading a little bit about Frederick II led me To explore a lot of his castles and to know how responsible he was for just the way modern Puglia is shaped. And even behind that, the whole sheep culture in Puglia and how these migration paths made the country develop the way it was. So the deeper you go, you know, the more you find out that everything you step on has a past and that it's available for you.
0: Now, where exactly is Puglia, and what's the big city in that region?
1: Puglia is way south. It's down in the heel, and Brindisi is the place you can fly into. Mm -hmm. And Puglia has been kind of put on the map recently by the fact that there are now inexpensive flights from London to Brindisi. Mm -hmm. So people from there can get there in two hours. So that's Mm. opened it up quite a bit. But when I first went to Puglia 25 years ago, there was no one there. Mm-hmm. But it's still it's still such a place to discover. There are these cone-shaped houses, the truly, and they're in a little town called Albarobello, and it's very touristy now, but it's still magic. You feel like the elves are going to come out of these <laughs> little houses at any minute. And they go back, way back to when farmers just built something out of the field stones, and they look like they've been there for a million years, but they have been there for a
0: thousand. Frances Mays is our special guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She's written seven books about Tuscany, starting with her bestseller Under the Tuscan Sun, which described her impulsive move to a fixer-upper in the middle of Italy. Her latest book is See You in the Piazza, New Places to Discover in Italy. There's more on her website, and that's francesmaysbooks.com. So, Frances, when you're traveling, when you're venturing away from the tourist's you really find that different dimension of Italy. You could take away all the top 10 places that 95% of the tourists spend 90% of their time in, and you could still have a great country to visit. You mentioned Parma, Catania, Genova. These are places that very few people go to, even though they're great destinations in themselves. Talk about Catania a little bit. I mean, because a lot of people think the charm is in the villages, but Catania is a big, rollicking city in Sicily. And you described vividly the market in Catania. I just uh, love you. I think you wrote, its fish market makes Venice's Rialto market look like Whole Foods.
1: (laughs) It does. I have never experienced a market like that. The way people were shouting to sell their goods, you felt like you'd step back into the Middle Ages. Mm. And it's a handsome town. I had kind of fear of Catania. You know, it's a raucous seaport and had kind of a bad rap. But it's so beautiful in the interior and so civilized. The first night we were there, people were walking by our table, outside table, going to the opera. And mm-hmm. they all looked like they stepped out of daguerreotypes. Mm. They were in their jewels and their, you know, the men had the big mustaches. And it was just one of those moments when the curtain of time seems to part.
0: Daguerreotypes like a 100-year-old black-and-white photograph?
1: Yes, yes. Wow,
0: that is a great image.
1: But everyone was pouring into the opera house, so Catania is very sophisticated and civilized, and you just have to get beyond those stereotypes that some towns have, like Torino. Everyone thinks, oh, Fiat, you know, Alfa Romeo, cars, cars, manufacturing. Torino is a regal town. It's an amazing... Culinary destination And also the gateway to all of Piemonte with all the wines mm-hmm. But I could live in Torino That was another aspect Of all these travels Was I kept finding places I would like To live I felt a little unfaithful to Cortona. (laughs) You were were
0: two-timing on Cortona.
1: I was.
0: (laughs) Well, Torino is one of those industrial cities in the north, and I think most people would go to Milano because it's got the Leonardo da Vinci art and and the Great Cathedral, and Torino gets overlooked. But I think you make a very good case in your book that Genova and Torino, there you feel the pulse of uh, Italian urban culture uh, maybe even more vividly than in the places that are so packed with the tourists. Well, you do, you mentioned uh, eating in Torino. Describe a good meal that you had in, in Torino.
1: Oh, there's so many. It's hard to choose. But right outside town, we drove out in a taxi. It was about a 20-minute ride to this uh, restaurant called Zero. It was regal and very contemporary, very beautiful. And the chef was having fun. He did a lot of playful things. He was playing tricks on us all the time. And at the end of the meal, these little bubbles were served that you put in your mouth and they, they were actually laughing gas. So he was playing tricks the whole time, but the food was enormously sophisticated. And my grandson was so impressed that they had a water menu, waters from all over the world with all the contents. So I, I love the basic trattorias, the mom and pop, the recipes mm-hmm. of Nona, but there's such a big movement in Italy now toward experimenting and taking the traditional ingredients and doing something fresh with them. So I love to combine those two ways of eating and traveling to try a lot of the, you know, the starred restaurants, the lauded restaurants, the ones that the chefs usually have gone away and trained, Mm -hmm. and then they've come home because they want to be with their family, Mm. and they never intended to really leave their home, but they've brought back new thinking and new information in their putting all this to play and to work in their restaurants.
0: It's funny you say the word playful because I have also found in Italy, more than other countries, I think, chefs are kind of playful and they're like enthusiastic, creative, uh, young chefs, uh, even if they've been at it for a long time and and it it feels to me they want to come out and see how you reacted to their playful creation. And it just brings a, a sprightliness to the meal
1: they do it's fun like bras in Lecce, way down in Puglia. They serve the roasted quail on a, a bed of straw so he looked like he was in his nest and mm. just funny things like that. They're really having a good time but it's not just theater it's just kind of an attitude I think that they're trying to play out not only in the food but in the presentation <speaking> in <Spanish>
0: We'll open up the phones in just a bit to let you talk with Frances Mays about small-town discoveries in Italy. In her latest book, See You in the Piazza, Frances and her husband zigzag from their home in Tuscany to dozens of small cities and villages all over Italy, places best explored at a leisurely pace where there's always time to enjoy a memorable dinner. Frances even got recipes from the chefs, which she includes at the end of some chapters. A little later in the hour, we'll ask friends from Hungary, Poland, and Turkey to update us on how they view the populist trends their countries have been experiencing. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. All it requires is a sense of adventure and maybe a rental car to experience the charms of dozens of small towns all over Italy. Frances Mays writes about places she fell in love with from the foothills of the Alps to the rugged coast of Puglia in her new book, See You in the Piazza. Frances, it was so refreshing to see you writing about towns that just don't get listed in many of the guidebooks. They sound like the kind of laid-back Italian villages we all dream about. After more than 30 years in Tuscany, what is it about Italy that still keeps it exciting for you?
1: I think it's because everything always seems different. You go 20 miles down the road, and they're serving a different kind of pasta, or Mm. the color of the stone is different. All the towns have their own particular art, and there's just such a kind of integrity to each place. And the root of that, of course, would be that they used to not be able to travel in the Papal States, or you know there was no way to travel. And so all these places developed their own dialects, and they're strong still. In our town, there are two very distinct dialects, and hmm. I found, particularly in Puglia, there are even roots of Greek words still in some of the dialects.
0: So you're saying in your in your hometown of Cortona, you'd have people on different sides of the square or whatever with their own dialects? Yes. I found that in the Cinque Terre also. Each town in the Cinque Terre, which are little tiny villages, a, a half-hour walk apart, you've got different words, and, and uh, I guess it is a matter of local pride, it's a matter of in the old days you weren't able to travel so easily, and now when you have modern infrastructure, you can pull it all together but Italy still has that, I love that notion of the campanil, what is it called, campanilismo? Uh,
1: Yes, within the sound of the bell. Isn't
0: that a great concept? What what does campanilismo mean to you?
1: It means the piazza, it means the church in your town, you want to be within the sound of that bell, It, Mm. it just means home to you. And in our town Cortona there are 4 or 5 different bells that you can hear right in the piazza. And everyone knows what bell is from what church. One mm. of them's called the nanny goat bell. <laughs> One of them sounds like you're hitting a dishpan with a stick. And <laughs> people love their own bell. It's kind of an interesting thing.
0: And it's a big issue with the new priest if he's going to ring the bell through the night or give everybody <laughs> a break from midnight to 6 a.m.
1: <laughs> yes. But it's interesting always to me that that specialness that each town has, each region has, it comes out of that the history of isolation. But one thing I discovered in going north to south to write this book is that every region is fantastic. I always thought, well, who wants to go to Molise? Oh, it was so beautiful, it's so rugged, and the people are just friendly and very robust cuisine, beautiful little beaches.
0: Where is that exactly, Molise?
1: Molise is way south, above Puglia. It's right oh, next okay. to Abruzzo. Uh,
0: okay, see, I don't. I'm a typical American. I don't know anything much south of uh, Naples.
1: You've got to go. I
0: know it. Well, you in your book you say there's such a vast cultural diversity packed into a land the size of Arizona.
1: Yes, it's just astonishing.
0: You mentioned that travel is a journey into one's own ignorance. What did you mean by that?
1: Absolutely. One of the joys of writing this book was that I just read everything about each region and had to realize how little I knew the successive waves of conquerors of Catania and how just the way the mountains plunge down into the sea in Catania mm. influences the way people are. So you get into the geography, you get into the history, and then who the person is you're meeting makes a lot more sense to you. Yeah. It's that. Revelation that comes from travel that is really the reason I travel.
0: People are always asking me, you know, how do you save money? What's a budget trick? And, you know, it's going to cost you to eat well. It's going to cost you to see the great sights. And the more understanding you bring with you, the more context, the more ability you have to appreciate what you're consuming or what you're seeing or what you're enjoying, the more value it is. So, my good budget tip is to do exactly what you're talking about. Know what you're looking at, and it becomes a much more rewarding experience.
1: Yes, the other great budget tip for Italy is the whole agriturismo idea. Those are farm stays, and the website's just Mm agriturismo.it. Each region is packed. I mean, forget Airbnb. It's just fabulous to go stay on farms with working
0: This is a farmhouse, kind of you could call it a farmhouse B&B. And to get that prestigious agriturismo title, I understand it has to be a working farm. They have to actually, it's not just a a nice house in the countryside that used to be a farm. They have to have stuff going on where they make money with their agriculture or their animals. And it's a real working farm. You know, in our country, the family farms sort of just couldn't make it. But in Italy, they supplement their income by renting out rooms, and the family farms can survive and talk about a way to connect with the people and to really connect with the culture. And and you get to pet a goat or you get to sit down at the table and have that zero-kilometer meal where everything is right off the farm.
1: Yes, and sometimes they will have cooking classes they make special things for your breakfast, like mm. a wonderful frittata, and you mm. get to go out and get the eggs, and
2: mm. you get it. to
1: know the family, and they can give you great tips about where to eat in town, and things that you might not know to do that they know about.
0: Do you have a couple of favorites, Francis, as far as agriturismi go?
1: I've stayed in several. I've stayed in the countryside in Tuscany at very small farms in the Marima.
0: Mm-hmm. and
1: that is such a wonderful area. I'm um, way south in Puglia, in Sicily. I've stayed in a lot mm. of them.
0: Some of my favorite meals have been at the family table, and you've got generations of, of the mothers and fathers all around you on these portraits, and you're, you see the, the family wine being poured by Grandma, and it's been in the family for generations, and there's something that just makes it a beautiful experience.
1: It does. They're putting up the blackberry jam and they give you a jar when you leave. I it's love it. It's just an intimate experience.
0: Anywhere in Italy, you know, you don't need to bog down on a specific recommendation. Anywhere you're going in Italy, you can get online and find the agriturismos in that area, and then you can uh, have that more intimate countryside experience. You know, Francis, I've always uh, wondered, you're the expert on Tuscany. You love Cortona. You've written books on Tuscany. Uh, but Tuscany has gotten quite popular, and is the Marche a, a sort of a the next Tuscany, or what would you recommend to people that would like quote the untouristy Tuscany?
1: So much of Tuscany is untouristy, and I hear all the time, "Oh, Tuscany is overrun." It's not. Mm. I mean, in mid July, in places that tourists flock to, it's going to be kind of right. crowded. But here's all the rest of the year. Like if I were in Cortona right now. I doubt if there'd be any tourists Uh there. So I'm a big one for traveling off season if you can. But even in Tuscany, like in the wine country, Montepulciano, Montalcino, Pienza, Cortona, those are popular in the summer, Mm -hmm. but they're not overrun. Uh, Florence can be overrun. Venice can be overrun. But I think it's very exaggerated that these small hill towns. Or
0: Vieto can be overrun. <laughs> There's a few places that are tourist traps, but you're right. If you just venture out a little bit, you can do fine. Frances Mays has written seven books about Tuscany, starting with the bestseller Under the Tuscan Sun. In her latest book, See You in the Piazza, New Places to Discover in Italy, Frances explores the hidden Italy as she visits dozens of scenic small towns scattered all across the country. We have links to her books with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at com. Gloria has called in from Daytona Beach in Florida. Gloria, thanks for your call.
4: Hi. Hi, Francis. Thank you so much for all your hard work and helping us through these years um, educate our seven daughters of their heritage, which came through Sicily. Oh, and, you know, the quickest path to memory is taste and smell, so we're all about food and your cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> so... The question I had for you was, where would you recommend that two of our daughters, 33 and 40, are planning to go on a trip to visit the um, homeland and stay in a small town and immerse themselves in the culture, just the way you prescribed to get to know the real Italy? We just came back from Catania, my husband and I, so I was wondering, what would you suggest? Maybe Puglia, or would
1: you suggest... Tuscany. What time of year are they going? Well, they're teachers, so that it would have to be summer. For young women in summer, I think the little beach town of Marzameimi in the south of Sicily would just be Ooh, wonderful.
5: Marzumami.
1: It's a beautiful small piazza lined with gorgeous cafes. It's right mm. on the water, right on a nature preserve. And it's also ah. very convenient for exploring Syracuse. And the Baroque towns of Notomotica and mm-hmm. Chicli yeah. and it's just a great base, but they would be there for this wonderful nightlife in the piazza and I yeah. think they would absolutely yeah, really enjoy
4: Ortigia.
0: Gloria, let me uh, bust in here because Ortizia is amazing and it's a little confusing because everybody thinks of Syracuse. But the historic yeah. little island birthplace center, yeah. old center of Syracuse is Ortigia. Mm-hmm. And I found that to yeah. be one of the greatest discoveries also in Sicily. So that's nice. And I would add, I, I really like Francis's uh, idea about establishing a comfortable base. And from there you side trip out. And the beach town Francis mentioned would be uh, delightful to take advantage of the, the great infrastructure that Sicily has. It seems like they got better roads than they deserve. And there's probably a reason for that as the, the North tries to subsidize the South to Keep them up to speed, and with that base that Francis mentioned, you could visit so much in Southern Sicily. What was the name of that town again, Francis?
1: It's M A R Z A M E M I, Marza
0: Martzamemi. Nice, nice. All right, Gloria. Thanks yeah. for your call.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you. Bye. 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 Glenn is calling in from Sun Prairie in Wisconsin.
6: Hi, Rick. Uh, Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk to Francis. I've got two quick questions, if you don't mind.
0: Sure.
6: Uh, The first is about the Albergo Diffuso movement. I've been reading about that, where they kind of try to resuscitate an old town by putting a hotel in the middle of it, but the hotel rooms themselves might be somewhere else in the village is this destroying those towns or is it preserving them? What's your opinion?
1: I'm so glad you brought that up because it's a great movement and it's catching on. It's a way that someone can have a hotel when they don't have a hotel. Mm -hmm. You check in at a central place and someone takes you to a room in town that is usually beautiful. The one we were in was over the sea. And then you go back to that office for breakfast if you want to. But it's a great neighborhood kind of experience too because you're not in a hotel, you are you have neighbors and if you stay a few days, you can figure out what they're cooking by the scents that are coming out the door and it's lovely and it's reviving these towns, I think. It's not doing anything negative.
0: So that's well, Albergo. That really good to hear. The word is Albergo Diffuso and uh, I've encountered yeah, they're that diffused. also. It's, it's wonderful. You have the main check-in area and then they usually have a a person who will take you to your room, even if it's a few blocks away, and set you up. And then you're situated and you feel more like a temporary local. What was your other question, Glenn?
6: The other question was about this year. They always have two cities of culture in Europe. And this year it's in Italy, a little place called Matera, way down south. And I'm wondering if this would be a good year to go there or maybe skip this year because it might be a little bit too crowded. I understand the infrastructure may not be uh, quite up to having the number of people who are expected to go there.
1: That's a good point. I'm not sure about that, but it's a fascinating town, and even if you wait a year, I think it would be worth going back to. It's where the, all the cave dwellers were on the side of the hill. I was there 30 years ago. It was dismal indeed, and it's been so cleaned up, and nobody lives in the caves anymore, so they've become you know, objects of interest, but The main part of the town, other than the caves, is also really a pleasant town. It's in Basilicata, so it's a little bit out of the way, but if you're traveling to Puglia, uh, Matera used to be part of Puglia, and it's still very close, so combining a trip to Puglia with going to Matera would be a good move.
0: Wasn't Matera made famous with the Mel Gibson movie The Passion?
1: Yes, it was filmed there, and the book Christ Stopped at Eboli" features Matera,
0: You know, Glenn, I've never found that when these cities are made the cultural capital or whatever, it's an excuse to invest in the towns and and bring them to the forefront. But I've never found that they're overrun with tourists because of that. So, as Francis said, you could go the year after, but you could also go the same time, and I think you would enjoy it, especially down there. There's not a lot of tour crowds.
6: I was in Plovdiv last summer, which is the other city of culture. It's in Bulgaria. Hmm. That's an absolutely fascinating place.
0: I love that. Hey, Glenn, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Frances Mays. Her new book is See You in the Piazza. And Mike's calling from Cincinnati. Mike, thanks for calling in.
4: Hey there, Rick. Love the show. Thank you. Yeah, just talking about being off the beaten path and everything. I did study abroad in all different parts of Europe, but I got to do some city hopping around Italy. And the group that I was with, they like to do more of the mainstream stuff. But every city I was in, I loved to just walk around the city on my own and just kind of see the city for myself. And I found that by walking, I got to experience the city so much more than if I was taking a train or a bus across the town.
0: Mm. Well, I think that's good. That's advice. what
1: I do. The minute I get to a city, I start walking. And I think getting up early in the morning is such a wonderful thing to do because you get to see the city come awake and to get that fresh cornetto just as the pastry shop opens. And walking is the best. I I think also it's a way in a place like Venice that you can really get away from the madding crowds because as soon as you get away from tourist hotspots like in Florence too... You're out in just everywhere in Venice, lost, getting lost, finding (laughs) yourself again, getting lost again. Mm -hmm. And it's lovely to discover a city like that.
4: I know that exact feeling Mm -hmm. in Venice because everyone else was taking a water taxi towards our hostel. And they all had wheeling luggage in Venice of all places. And I had just my travel backpack and I said, see you guys later. I'm walking. I had a little (laughs) uh, map that wasn't very detailed at the time but I found myself lost near San Marco Plaza and I had to stop and ask for directions and figured out that, you know, the address for each district, it was just a number and the name of the district. There were no street names. So I had to find that out on my own and I wouldn't have experienced that and, you know, got to know the city if I was just taking a water taxi.
0: Yeah. it's That's yes. good advice. And uh, it's especially rewarding when you find yourself in, what I call fiat-free Italy, any time you're in a in a traffic-free <laughs> town. I think, Francis, didn't you write about the beauty of traffic-freeness in Trentino?
1: All over Italy, many towns are closing their historic centers to traffic, mm-hmm. and it's the best thing that's oh. ever happened in Italy. You wake up in downtown Florence, and,
0: and you hear the <laughs> birds now in downtown Florence instead of trucks <laughs> coming and going. It's just a beautiful thing. It is. Mike, we're out of time. Thanks for your call. Happy travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring offbeat Italy with Frances Mays. And if anybody knows Italy, Frances does. Her new book is See You in the Piazza, New Places to Discover in Italy. You know, Frances, your book covers all of the places that are not household words here among travelers in the United States from the Dolomites to the south of Sicily. And in the very end, you came home to Cortona, (laughs) your beautiful adopted (laughs) hometown in Tuscany. What is it about, just let's finish up this uh, discussion with just what is it about coming home to Cortona for you after spending months on the road researching your new book?
1: I fell in love with Cortona many years ago when I just by chance rented a house outside the town. And by the end of that month, I knew that I wanted to somehow put down roots in Italy. I traveled a lot after that, looked all around at other towns, but always kept coming back to Cortona. I think there's just something in your metabolism that responds to a particular place, and that is my place.
0: You know, that's a real blessing to be able to go home to a place in Italy and still have your roots in the United States. That's a beautiful thing.
1: I do. I wouldn't give up my time in the United States, but... I've lived in uh, Cortona longer than I've lived anywhere. You're
0: having your cake so, and eating it, too.
1: <laughs> yes, best of both worlds.
0: All right. Hey, Francis, thanks for joining us and uh, congratulations on your new book. See you in the piazza. Thank you. And um, bon viaggio.
1: Buon viaggio, Rick.
0: A personal look at the political drama in Hungary, Turkey, and Poland. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Some are calling it a wave of illiberalism that's been raising concerns in Poland, Hungary, and Turkey. Others see it as democratically-supported populism. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, I've asked some of our friends from those places to explain how they see the political trends in their countries. In Poland, a conservative party has led the government there for the last four years. In Hungary, authoritarian Viktor Orban started his third term as prime minister last year. And in Turkey... President Recep Erdogan has been using emergency powers to silence his critics ever since a failed coup attempt back in 2016. We're joined by Beata McComas from Poland, Monika Posch is from Hungary, and Yarin Turgulu is from Turkey. Thanks to all of you for being willing to share your views about what's been going on lately in your countries. Thank,
5: Thank you, you Thank you for having Thanks us. for having us. Uh,
0: Beata, in Poland, what's the political news?
5: We are currently under... A conservative uh, ruling party, PIS, Law and Justice. I can freely say I did not vote for, but my parents did. Mm -hmm. We agree that we disagree. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's a conservative party heavily influenced by Catholic Church in Poland. Mm -hmm. Trying to impose laws, rules and regulations that are aligned with Catholic thinking.
0: So, Conservative Party, uh, Law and Justice is the name, embracing the Catholic Church. That's what's happening in Poland right now. Yarin, in uh, Turkey, what's the news?
2: In Turkey, the ruling party is the Justice and Development Party who has been ruling the country for the past 16 years. They have won, I think, four executive elections. So, Mm -hmm. they have shifted the country from a parliamentary democracy to an executive presidential system.
0: So from the parliament making the laws to the executive branch being stronger. Yes. So this is a dynamic you would have in many democracies when mm-hmm. you have a judicial branch, the legislative branch, the executive branch, and in your case, the Separation executive of powers, yes. The executive is, yeah. um, is more powerful now than that branch was 10 years ago. Definitely. Monica, in Hungary.
3: The ruling party is the Young Democratical Party, Fidesz, It's very, very controversial what's going on. That young Democratic Party in 1989, at the fall of the communist era, got in power and they said, Russians go home. And they were the symbol of our freedom and democracy after the long 50 years of communism. Now the same leadership and the same people are the one who are downsizing our schools They are the one who are cutting free speech and who has two-thirds in the parliament, which meant that they wiped out the entire opposite party. So practically we have a one-party system.
0: So this is uh, interesting. In 89, when Hungary won its freedom and its democracy from the Soviet Union, the Young Democratic Party was the hero of that. Absolutely. And now, uh, a generation later, they're in power and they have so many people in the legislative branch, two-thirds that they can just ignore all the opposition. Absolutely. It's like in our Senate, if you have more than 60 votes, 60%, you can pretty much uh, write the own rules. So that gives that party a lot of power in your country. Absolutely. Okay, so we've got uh, this interesting dynamic going on in the three countries that are most in the news because of this populism related to the political dynamic in the United States with President Trump. What is the general attitude, the public pronouncement about democracy be in in Poland. What does your uh, president say about democracy itself?
5: Well, despite what you can hear on the news and read in the paper about Polish situation, we are a still democratic country. We have free elections, we have freedom of speech, Mm -hmm. uh, freedom of gathering, Mm -hmm. and expressing our opinions. So we are a democratic country, and after 1989, we've been exercising a right to congregate and uh, voice our opinion and dissatisfaction out in public. So
0: today, can you say in Poland the people's will in that democracy is the Law and Justice Party and President
5: Yes, they won the election fair and square. Okay. And they're ruling.
0: Let's talk about Turkey. Yaren, in Turkey, what does Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party, does he represent the people?
2: In the last election, which was in 2018, July, he got almost 52% of the national votes. So mm-hmm. he gets his legitimacy from the ballot box. Mm-hmm. So it's democratic. We have, we and, have and democratic Erdogan elections. And considers himself
0: a democracy. Definitely. And, uh, Monica, in Hungary?
2: Well, in Hungary,
3: the situation is quite interesting sorry, but I have to go back to 1918. After the First World War, Hungary as a loser had to give huge territories as a compensation to the neighboring countries. Mm. So due to that fact, since 1918, millions of Hungarians who actually woke up from Friday till Monday, that they are not in Hungary, but in Romania, in Ukraine, and so on. So A couple of years ago, the Today Party, as a national or general election, whether we consider those people who are carrying the Hungarian language still Hungarian citizens or not. Myself voted yes, because that seemed as a right thing, not seeing through actually what was the genius plan, because now millions of uh, people in the foreign countries with Hungarian heritage, never lived one day in Hungary, received Hungarian citizenship and have a right to vote. Okay, now, so until
0: 1918, Hungary was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You started and lost World War One, basically. Yes. Therefore, Austria and Hungary lose a lot of their land. Hungary, mm-hmm. Hungary becomes much smaller yes. and that means a lot of Hungarian people are in neighboring countries. That's a hundred right. years later... You have a politician that says it's only right for the Hungarians outside of our country who should be part of Hungary because they took the land away from us in 1918 after World War One. They should be able to vote. And that president uh, understood that they would likely vote for his party. It's a smart move for him politically.
3: Oh, yes. I mean, uh, that fulfilled their purpose beautifully because from our taxpayer money, the government is giving million worth of US dollar worth of uh, money to supporting the outside countries today Hungarian citizens and they're buying their vote. So practically it doesn't matter what they do in Hungary, the government, it doesn't matter the bribery, it doesn't matter the corruption, the EU monies shifting into private pockets. Practically surely they have millions of people's sure vote.
0: It's Travel with Rick Steves and we're hearing the views of Monica Pot- from Hungary, Beata Makamis from Poland, and Yaren Turgulu from Turkey on the political landscape in their countries. I'd love to know, in your countries, who's considered the base of the party that's in power now? Beata, in Poland, how do you describe the base of uh, President Duda?
5: Those are usually people who are churchgoers. Catholic church. Catholic church. I don't want to use the word less educated Mm -hmm. with primary school or middle school education. So not
0: educated elites.
5: Yes. And uh, living in the uh, rural areas.
0: Okay. So small town, countryside, not educated big city elites and religious people.
5: Correct. Law and Justice Party won in Poland heavily because of the social programs that they promised. Economy in Poland is strong. Unemployment is around 5%. As water is a, a strong currency. We have a good relationship with our partners in EU. So the next thing to tackle was the social programs. So the party promised a lot. Uh, they promised to lower the age of uh, retirement, mm-hmm. to boost the growth rate by promising people a certain amount of money.
0: The birth rate. So yes. m- more people in Poland.
5: We need them. We're now at 39 million. We okay. were at 40. Okay. So they promised that for every child you get 500 zloty per month. And e- actually... E- economic
0: they, incentives to have more children. Absolutely. In Turkey, Yaren, who would be considered the base of Erdogan?
2: The base of the ruling party is uh, mostly the more religiously conservative people.
0: So these would be conservative Muslims?
2: Conservative Muslims.
0: Big city or small town?
2: It doesn't matter. Okay. Istanbul is like a microcosm of Turkey.
0: So it would be more conservative people religiously?
2: Generally speaking, yes. And
0: would he say, is there, like in Poland, Beata was talking about the educated elites, is there any difference there, or is Erdogan... There's a
2: difference regarding to that, too. Uh, Which way? Generally, the educated elite uh, vote for the main opposition party.
0: Okay. In Turkey, Erdogan is is remarkably popular. What makes him so popular with his base?
2: His base believes that Turkey is much more powerful now than before. Powerful now? Uh, They believe that they have a strong leader... And uh, there's an economical success before Erdogan came into power. There was a coalition and there was an economic crisis. So Turkey overcame that and economically did much better under Erdogan's rule.
0: So Erdogan is good for the economy. I mean, that's the the belief in the people.
2: That's the belief. That's the belief of his base.
0: And Monica, in Hungary, who would be the base for Prime Minister Orban's party?
2: Well, a
3: majorly small uh, city, conservative, religious uh, part of the society. Mm -hmm. Also, the major, major election word was refugees. The fear of uh, refugees, that's the major point, so women in tiny villages are afraid that they're going to be all raped by the refugees, who, by the way, have no intention to come to Hungary.
0: That brings up this fear image, because I think uh, wannabe autocrats, whether far left or far right, have used fear to change their democracies, I think.
3: We had our latest election just recently. Mm -hmm. I would say there was no new political program. There was only one word. Refugees, we will protect you. But you need to know that practically from, uh, and I don't want to tell you wrong numbers, but for hundreds of thousand refugees who actually went through the country, maybe like 20 of them applied uh, and wanted to stay. To
0: stay. So they're just going to Germany, basically. Exactly. Okay. So, so but a fear of refugees. Yes. The judiciary has been changed in our country yes. and in your country. News in, in Hungary. Is, rhetoric. I mean, is the just rhetoric.
3: Uh, yeah. yeah. And at any time, actually, uh, a journalist is asking a politician about their bribery, mm-hmm. the answer is that's fake news.
2: Right. I think it's widespread. And when a journalist is arrested in Turkey, uh, most of the people believe that he's not arrested because of journalism. There's right. another yes. reason for that. There's yeah. another reason for
5: that. Well, in Poland, we're lucky we have free journalism, but more now than ever before, after 1989, we see that the public television is the one that sides with the government. Mm -hmm. It's like the Fox News of the United States. And then all the Mm -hmm. private television stations are more liberal and criticizing the government.
0: Yorin, do you have a sense that a crisis is created in the minds of the people who vote in Turkey to help the political party in power?
2: It's generally the fear of the external political powers that don't want a powerful Turkey.
0: In Turkey, of course, there was the failed coup attempt. Yes. And how did that impact the situation today in Turkey?
2: A lot of people in Turkey have the sense that the government is taking advantage of the coup attempt to oppress the opposition. Uh On the other hand, many people believe that they have every right to do so.
0: And, uh, Monica, in Hungary, is there a a sense that a, a crisis is made?
3: Uh, definitely. In our story, I should mention the EU money, which, uh, as I mentioned, is shifted into private pockets to the political elite uh, pocket to cover. You have to create an issue, a crisis. So the whole society or the remains of the free media is uh, discussing that things. Meanwhile, billion worth of US dollar is shifted into private pockets. I truly feel that as soon as one crisis issue is kind of fading away, there is another one.
0: Crises are created to distract people, so uh, they'll look at the crisis rather than where's this money going.
3: Exactly.
0: That's Monica Pash from Hungary as we discuss the authoritarian political trends in Europe and Turkey right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll hear more from Yarin Turkulu about Turkey's scheduled local elections on March 31st in just a moment. But first... Let's get a little more background on the situation in Poland from Beata McComas. Now, in your country, there was a terrible airplane crash and much of the government died. Did that impact in any way where you are today politically, uh, Beata, in Poland?
5: Yes, I believe so. The president, Kaczyński, died in a plane crash back then. He has a twin brother who is also very politically involved and he is a leader of the leading political party in Poland right now. And facto, facto he's the person that pulls the strings and makes the decisions and our president just agrees with him. A lot that the party does, I think, is in a way to honor the president that passed away and it feels almost like his brother is trying to make him look like a saint person.
0: Are they taking advantage of that in a way that is sort of opportunistic?
5: I think it's important to remember that almost 100 people from our government died in that plane crash. So the memory of those people, I mean, it should be kept. Yes. But to build so many monuments, to have monthly praying sessions outside of churches in the public squares. I think that's taking it a little bit too much.
0: Okay. You know, it's very interesting because a lot of liberals are all up in arms because of these populist leaders, these right-wing autocrats. But clearly there's a reason that they're in power, and it, it sounds like there's a popular support. If you could say a percent of the people in the country supporting the politician, how strong is your leadership? How strong is your ruling party? Beata in Poland.
5: I would say over 50%. Okay. I want to uh, say that the next parliamentary election will be won by this party again. I mean, that's what the polls showing right now. We still have two more years to go.
0: In Yaren, uh, in Turkey, uh, how popular is Erdogan and what is his prospect for the next He's election? He's still very
2: popular, but we have a municipal election coming. Uh-huh. So that will also show us probably the outcome of the next general election because generally the political party who wins Istanbul also takes Turkey. So that will be a big indication.
0: And Monica in Hungary?
2: Well, quite
3: frankly, because the media freedom cut uh, so badly, the official, we just call it the royal TV and the royal uh, radio, they says that uh, today government is 100% supported by the entire country. So your your government
0: controls the media, yes. and the media controls people's viewpoint unless exactly. they're very sophisticated. Yes. And now it seems, according to the media, that everybody is in favor exactly. of the Exactly, so hun- that's uh, why Oban's I can't party. tell. The... It seems to me the ruling parties in Poland, in Hungary, and in Turkey are all pretty strong. They're going to be around for a while. And it seems a lot like Putin in Russia. He's very popular in Russia. He's made the country stable. He's made the country strong in the international view. He's uh, promised uh, people that he'll protect them from bad forces coming in, stability, economy.
3: Outsiders.
0: uh, Outsiders.
3: Definitely there is a pattern.
0: What's the impact on tourism? Because we're a travel show. People love to go to Hungary. They love to go to Turkey. They love to go to Poland. Just from a practical point of view, if you're a traveler thinking of coming to your country... Is there anything to be concerned about? What are the pros and cons? Monica, let's talk about Hungary.
3: Each nation needs to go through the growing pain, if I could say that way. These issues majorly are our inner politics, so our dear travellers coming over to our country can enjoy the same fantastic cruise
2: ships, the same cafe houses and all of the beauties that we have.
0: Yaren, in Turkey.
2: In Turkey, the political situation does not affect tourism, so Although a lot of people have concerns about government trying to impose their preferred lifestyle on the entire society, but on an individual basis, it doesn't affect us so As a Turk living in Istanbul, I have a very beautiful life. I just continue my life. I have a vivid social life. So it doesn't affect tourism and it doesn't affect individuals if you stay away from politics.
0: It probably affects the number of people coming to the country because there's a perception that it's Uh, it's nervous. But your point is when you do go to Istanbul, you'll feel it's like normal. Beatrice, you take groups through your homeland of Poland. What's the impact of the politics on the experience of the visitor?
5: There is really no impact, at least nothing that you would see as a tourist. It's a still very safe country. Tourism infrastructure is fully developed. The only thing I can think of from a guiding point of view, every now and then we may stumble upon uh, some protest. But that, to me, it's another form of education. It's an
0: exercise of freedom also. You know, it's so complicated. There's so many lessons we can learn from each other. There's hardball politics being played. There's real risks from outside. There's real people's lives at stake. All I can say is we all live in democracies, and democracies are fragile, and it's great that we travel. We learn from each other. We do what we can to help the fabric of our free countries. Thanks so much for joining us and for sharing. Monica Pash from Budapest in Hungary, Jaren Turkulu from Istanbul in Turkey, and Beata Makomis from Poland. Thanks again, and best wishes to each of you.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
4: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks this week for editing help from Sarah McCormick, studio help from WUNC in Durham, North Carolina, and website support from Gretchen Strauch. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more at ricksteves.com radio.
3: Rick Steves Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for Rome... Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, plus Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, shop online at ricksteves.com.